Well, good morning, everybody. It's Wednesday, and that means it's Bible study. I'm excited to be back with you all this morning. I missed you last week. Special word of thanks to Mary Lessman, who so brilliantly filled in for me last week to complete Daniel. So this week, we get to move into Revelation. And Revelation is one of those books that I think people, it kind of scares people. It gets sort of interested. They sort of want to know more about it, but it seems very intimidating. And so we're going to put all of that down. We are not going to be intimidated. We are going to charge forward confidently, intelligently, and we're going to really learn how to pick this book apart and help us to be better Christian disciples in the process. So a quick reminder that we've got an email list and I want you to be a part of it. And so if you're watching for the first time, join our email list. You can visit our website, stmichael.org slash RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study slash RBS. And you can email Meredith Rose and let her know that you want to be on our email list or just search for her on our website. She will add you and you'll get those reminders on Mondays about what we will be studying together. In addition, the stmichael.org slash RBS is where you can go and watch any of our old studies you can listen to audio recordings of studies from Luke, Acts, and Genesis, which is all before the pandemic and we started doing videos. You can hear audio recordings of years of Bible studies. And I have loved getting messages from people over these last few months about how they've gone back and they've either re-listened or perhaps listened for the first time to all of those audio recordings because it's given them a lot of hope, kind of a rootedness or an anchor during this pandemic. And so I am grateful that we're able to connect in that way. And finally, ask questions. So we've had Daniel, which is great. We've gone through that narrative and now we're moving into Revelation, all apocalyptic literature, but it's very important that you ask questions because I always say, if you've got a question, someone else has the same question. So be brave, be courageous. Ask those questions in the comment fields if you're either on Facebook or YouTube, or if you're using live stream or simply watching this on demand later, then send Meredith an email and I collect those questions throughout the week and then typically use those questions to do some special Q&A during the study. Because we are beginning Revelation and we're looking at chapter one today, we're gonna save the Q&A for the end of the session so that we can really jump right in and get rolling. All right, so before we do, Let's open with a prayer. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this life, for the mystery of love, and for the opportunities all around us. May we be open in this hour. Put down all that weighs upon us so that we can make space for your spirit to fill us up and to inspire us to be your disciples in the world. May we, as we study your sacred texts, be inspired to be hands and feet of love in the world, that through us, we can help bring about your kingdom here on earth now. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's jump right in. So first, we're going to kind of make a connection between Daniel and Revelation. So Daniel, as you know, is apocalyptic literature. Daniel is found in the Old Testament as a Hebrew scripture. Daniel was written when life was really hard, right? We remember the exile and the way that it connects with both 
the end of the kingdom period and also shifts into the rebuilding of the temple, the renewal of the Jewish people in Israel in the building of that second temple. But in the exile, things were really hard. And so Daniel kind of inserts himself in that moment and really uses the opportunity for for this apocalyptic moment to tell a story that provides hope at a time when the people really needed hope. In a very similar way, Revelation takes on the mantle of that tradition, that apocalyptic literature tradition, and John writes Revelation at a time when the Christian people, those followers of Jesus, really needed hope. They needed a good word. They needed someone to inject a little bit of adrenaline or enthusiasm and courage into their life because life was not easy. So John and Daniel connect in those ways. Now, we talked a little bit about apocalyptic literature, and we're going to talk a bit more about what that word means. But before we get rolling, today's lesson will be in four parts. So for those of you taking notes, we've got four sections today. The first is simply, what is Revelation as a book? The second is, where does Revelation fit? Kind of in the grand arc of faith, the story of God's faithful people, where does Revelation fit? Three, we're going to begin looking at chapter one, and the first part of chapter one is Jesus is coming. And then the second part of chapter one, which will be the fourth section of today's lesson, is the vision of Christ that John receives. All right, so we've got what is Revelation, where does it fit, and then Jesus is coming, the announcement, and the vision of Christ that John receives. All right, let's jump in. First section of today's lesson, what is Revelation? So as I've said, I use the word apocalypse, apocalyptic, often when describing Daniel and Revelation, and apocalypse has its rootedness in uncovering or revealing or making something new known. All right, so consider the way that vision works, and I mean like literal eyeball vision. If you see something, you can't unsee it. But until you see something, it's often difficult to perceive whatever that thing might be. You know, if you walk into a room and there's a box on a table and the room is empty and someone says, what's in the box? I mean, gosh, almost anything, right? Anything that's the size of the box could be in that box. And so until you actually remove that box or open that box in some way, you have no idea what is there. In a sense, opening up a box is like an apocalypse, an unveiling, showing you something new. That is really what apocalyptic literature is all about. Now, we've talked before about how apocalyptic literature is often misunderstood or misrepresented as fortune-telling, right? No, 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 it is not fortune-telling. It is not a prediction of the future, but instead, apocalypse is prophetic in the sense that it sees what's going on in the world, and it helps us understand better what's going on in the world so that, in a sense, we can make changes we need to make in order to recognize or reveal or help to bring about the world that we really want. Does that kind of make sense? The apocalypse, the opening up, the revealing, 
is really what Revelation is all about. Now, why do we then call it Revelation? Because we could call it Apocalypse. When the Bible was first translated into English, there was a translation that became Revelation. Because really, the Apocalypse is a revealing of some deeper truth. And so when the Bible was translated into English, that word apocalypse became revelation because there is a revealing. As I said, the book was never really meant to be, you know, a prediction of the future. However, that impacted people as a vision of what could be. So when John, well, what Daniel, which we've already studied, does is Daniel takes a bad situation and says to people, just wait. Things are not as bad as they seem because something is coming in the future, right? God has promised us something in the future. And that promise is sustaining. That promise is what helps us get through the hard times. And Revelation is a similar thing. We'll find that John specifically writes this letter, it is a letter, to a group of churches where the disciples of Jesus are struggling. And John's letter is meant to be that injection of hope and courage, that sustenance of God's promise, that what we see is not all there is. That no matter how bad things get here on earth, God is working to make all things good. And that work now happens in a very particular way through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's really what Revelation gets to. Now, just a few little housekeeping notes. You may have noticed, I say revelation, not revelations, okay? My grammar police brain wants to make sure, just once, I'll say it just once and I won't harp on it, but when you hear people use the plural, revelations, they are wrong. So just use the singular, it is revelation. No matter how you use it, you're talking about revelation, okay? Revelation is not a, an imagination of hell. What we will see in Revelation, or what you might believe or have heard about Revelation, is that there's a lot of imagery around heaven and hell. And what we find is that effectively it's a vision of heaven, but hell's kind of not there really. I mean, there you, there's a little moments that you sniff at, but really Revelation's about the hopefulness and the promise of God and heaven, what Jesus talked about as God's kingdom, that heavenly kingdom. What we might have a, uh, a habit of doing or what we might do accidentally is read Revelation and begin to get these pictures of hell or sort of the not heaven that we have created over time in our own literary tradition. We'll talk more about this, but I want to just plant the seed now that as we go through and in certain chapters, we might get, we might see things or read things that aren't really there in the text. And what we're likely seeing in our mind's eye is the development of ideas around hell that really root themselves in Dante. Um, if you haven't read Inferno recently, or maybe ever, um, it's really worth a read because Dante is really who puts voice and vision, imagery, around an idea of hell that is almost nothing like what we see in the Bible. And yet, it was so effective and impactful 
that people often conflate Dante's vision of hell with anything that sniffs of not heaven in the Bible. And so just kind of hold that there. You may want to read Inferno for fun. It's good as we proceed in this Revelation reading and study, because it will actually kind of fill out some of the ideas that we have about Revelation. Another big idea in Revelation is that numbers matter. We got a little bit of this in Daniel, just a little. But in Revelation, this idea of numerology comes really full bore. John will, and we see it right in the first chapter with the idea of the seven churches of Asia. John often uses numbers very intentionally to communicate ideas. Numbers, <laughs> I didn't really think through how I wanted to say this. Numbers matter. I don't want to discount numerology, but I want to provide a check that the numbers that John talks about in Revelation are not predictive. It's almost like code language for what's going on in the world. That's really what I want to say. We have to hold very clearly that John is talking about the world in which he lives. John is not talking about the world 2,000 years from when he lives, okay? It is very popular to use Revelation in this predictive way to then look at the world today, like the world that we live in, and to say, ah, ha, ha, Look at that person doing that thing in that place. And John in Revelation predicted that would happen, which means the rest of the stuff is now going to happen and the world's going to end. Boom, right? We have story after story after story of leaders misusing Revelation in that way. John is talking about a specific period of time and providing hope for people living in that period of time. Now we can, just like with Daniel, glean lots of good things, lots of good teachings that impact us today, but we have to stop short. We must, must stop short of acting like or understanding that John is predicting the future. That makes sense? So the numerology is good to understand John's message at that point in time. It is not helpful as a predictor of what's going to happen right now today, or maybe next year or the year after. Lastly, things are not in chronological order in Revelation. Okay, this is a big fundamental idea. It is easy for us as a reader to read Revelation as if everything is happening in chronological order and Unfortunately, it's often presented that way, or at least it's implied in its presentation that things are happening in order. Instead, Revelation should be read almost like a screenplay. If you've ever seen a really good movie or a really good TV show, then you know that there are multiple threads of storylines that are going on simultaneously. And what will often happen is You'll see one scene with one group of people, and then it will cut away mid-storyline to show you another scene of another group of people, and then it will cut away in mid-storyline. It'll go to a third scene with a third group of people, and then it will cut away in mid-storyline. And our brains naturally piece all of that together. We, we stitch all of that together, and we understand there could be two, three, four, five, six storylines going all at once, but they're all happening simultaneously, concurrently. And ultimately, they will weave their way in and out of one another. But it's not like 
one whole storyline happens and then a second whole storyline happens after the first, right? We understand that as we watch movies, TV shows, and things like that. Revelation is effectively a series of storylines, but John does not present them explicitly that way. And instead, we get what could be misunderstood as one constant timeline. I will point some of these moments out as we go, but just as you kind of collect ideas of Revelation, the way that we have the perspective of approaching this book, that is a very significant idea, kind of a foundational idea as we study this book. All right, that's the end of our first section. Our second section, where does Revelation fit, begins with, I think someone, I think, who is it? Ross has already asked this question. Who is John? That's very important for us to understand where Revelation fits in kind of the storyline of the early Christian church. So Revelation is written toward the end of the first century, we think. Let's put that in scope. Around what we call year zero, it's probably a little before that, Jesus is born. Jesus lives 30-ish years, and then he has his public baptism moment and the launch of his ministry. Then Jesus's ministry is eh, one year or three years. It depends. You can read it differently. Tradition usually says three years. That's fine. So usually people say Jesus was about 33 when he died. We don't know that, but that sounds fine. It's no big deal. So say around the year 30-ish is when Jesus dies. Jesus dies, is buried. Then Jesus resurrects, sees some of his disciples, talks with them, chats with them, cooks them a little breakfast, and then he ascends into heaven, okay? So for about 30-ish years, Jesus is physically present on earth. But by the mid-30s, Jesus is now gone. His physical presence is gone. And what is left for those who follow Jesus is the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, fills up those disciples and sends them out to begin to tell the story of Jesus, to give the good news, to let everybody know that God has done something new and exciting and that everyone is in, right? Everyone's invited to that new party. At that point in time, the disciples believe very truly that when Jesus said he was coming again, that he was coming again, I mean, like soon, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, but Jesus is coming. They had zero anticipation that they might die before Jesus comes again. So what do they do? They scattered the apostles and then their students, their disciples scattered all over the world. People like St. Paul and others began to plant churches, but they weren't planting churches to live for hundreds and thousands of years. No, they were planting churches because they were trying to save people. They were trying to bring people under this great big new tent before it was too late because Jesus said he was coming again. And so they scatter all over the Roman Empire and beyond to places like Central Asia, Northern India, and beyond and begin telling the story of Jesus. That generation, the generation of the apostles, begins to die. And all of a sudden, everyone looks at each other and says, ooh, maybe Jesus isn't coming like just quite yet. 
And so we need to preserve these stories. And that's when we get the Gospels. So the Gospels were all written 20, 30, 40 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The reason there was a big delay is because people didn't really think they had to write stuff down. It's just as simple as that. And I should note, just for all the good scholars out there, the Gospels that we have in our Bible, our canonical Gospels, the Gospels in the canon, are four of many Gospels written. Gospel basically means a book written about Jesus. That's really it. And there were dozens of other Gospels written in addition to the four that we have in our canon. Those Gospels exist in piecemeal. Some exist in only just a few snippets of words and phrases. Others exist mostly intact. But over time, four of those Gospels became authoritative. And those are the four that we have in our canon. Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, those are all written by people who, well, I shouldn't say this, people who knew Jesus in real life. Paul didn't really, but Paul saw Jesus. He could have known Jesus. He was the same generation of people as the apostles, right? They, they were that very first generation of leaders. They wrote letters to churches because they were trying to raise up good groups of disciples of Jesus all around the world. The Gospels were mostly written by their students, people who traveled with them, who helped them do their work, but were likely one generation behind them, you know, 10, 20-ish years younger. So they had heard all these stories firsthand from people like Peter and Paul and John and the others, and then they wrote them down. John of Patmos is who wrote Revelation. Revelation could be the very last book written that is contained in the New Testament. And what that means is epistles and letters were really written first. Then you basically had the writing of the Gospels, the four Gospels that are in our canon, and it's most likely that the letter of Revelation, the letter John wrote to the seven churches in Asia, was the last, or another way to say that, the most recent written book in the New Testament. Now, this is all educated guesses. We don't know for sure, but it makes most sense that that might be the timeline. The question that most people ask is, did the same John write the letters and the gospel and Revelation? So, we don't know for sure, but most scholars land on they are all different Johns. You have, you know, John the Evangelist, you've got John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, John of Patmos, that they are probably all different people. Now, is that 100%? No, we can't know. But the timeline of their authorship suggests that if they were the same John, he wrote his letters really young, and he wrote Revelation really old. Is it physically possible? Uh, yes, I guess. Um, but it seems so highly improbable that it's okay. 
It's okay they're not the same people. That's no problem. Their styles are different, the letters, the gospel, and revelation. So it seems most likely this is not the same John. But John's a popular name, and so that's why we name them John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, John of Patmos. So let's talk about Patmos real quickly. Patmos is an island prison 30-ish miles off the coast of western Turkey. So I uh, kind of think Alcatraz. Um, Patmos would have been a, an island relatively close to the coast. I mean, 30 miles isn't that close. Um, but it's close enough to the coast where it was a decently easy sail. And they would leave prisoners there. They, the Romans, I should clarify, the Roman Empire, would leave prisoners there because then they didn't really have to worry about them. They couldn't get off the island. They couldn't get anywhere. There were no boats. They certainly couldn't swim 30 plus miles back to Turkey. And so it is likely that John was working in churches in Western Turkey and his work in those churches was found offensive to the Roman Empire. And so ultimately he was arrested and likely likely tried, eh, we don't know, and then sent out to Patmos to effectively die in prison. So imagine John as a church planter, a church leader, who had some connection to a number of churches on the mainland of Turkey, what would Asia Minor or whatever you want to call it, separated from those communities, put on an island in prison. What would he do? It's likely, most likely, that he would not simply end his ministry and wait years and years to die. But instead, he would remain connected by writing letters back and forth to these churches. He would pray for these churches. He would pray hard for the people that he loved who were effectively facing a really difficult time because, as we know, the Roman Empire did not take very kindly to Christians at the end of the first century and in the second century. And so John would have prayed and prayed for them, written letters to them. And effectively what Revelation is, is a letter about a story, an experience that he had one day when he was praying intently for his friends. That is really what Revelation is. It's as if John, out there in prison, was so intensely praying that all of a sudden his eyes were opened and it's like the curtain went away and he could see Jesus. He could see the heavenly kingdom in real life. And he had this incredible vision and he needed to tell his friends about it. And that's really what Revelation is, is this letter of a vision to his friends. Let's see. I guess I should say contextually that Christians were not persecuted in the middle of the first century. But by the end of the first century, likely John is one of those persecuted. The Romans wise up to the growing resistance of Christians. I think for a time, a couple decades, Christians were just weird. You know, they were doing a thing they didn't understand, and there weren't many of them doing that thing. And so really, go and be weird and do your thing however you want. They weren't fighting anybody. They weren't burning anything down. And so they had other resistance fighters that they had to worry about. But the Romans finally realized after a few decades that the one 
facet of Christianity that was most problematic is that Christians were not afraid of dying. If we think about the most powerful message that Jesus gives us, the most powerful message is we do not have to fear death. That's really it. We do not have to fear anything that this world can throw at us, even death itself, because Jesus has overcome that hurdle. Jesus has overcome death. And now we have nothing to fear in this world. Well, when it came to the Roman Empire, their power was completely defined by fear. They made people afraid of what they could do to them, and then people did what they wanted. Well, these Christians were no longer afraid of dying, which means things like even a horrible death, like a crucifixion, is no longer going to make Christians do what the Romans want. Throw them to the lions, and they will still sing and pray because Jesus has defeated death. That kind of revolutionary perspective, that kind of overturning of the power structures of the world were missed by the Romans initially. But by the end of the first century, the Roman Empire, the emperors themselves had figured out just how dangerous Christianity was to the status quo. And then they began to address the danger by persecuting the Christians. And that's what ushers in the horrible phase of time when we find stories like Christians being thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions or drowned by water and all that sort of stuff. That's really when that begins. And even then, the idea of being martyred, of dying for something beyond what this world can give, undermined all of the authority and the power of the Roman Empire. Later, we may have a conversation about why, oh, that's why Constantine actually adopted Christianity, legalized it, and then later made it official, because if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat the Christians, then subsume them, bring them in, and make them your empire, and then they get on the same side. And that's the problem of Constantine with the power of Christianity tied to the power of the world, militarily and economically and all the other stuff. We will talk about that another time. Today, let's focus right on Revelation. So let's look at Revelation. It only took me 30 minutes to actually get to chapter one. <laughs> so turn to Revelation chapter one, verse one, right? Do not start flipping from the front of your Bibles if you don't have it open already, because Revelation's at the very back end. So start from the back. Find Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read the first two verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So let's talk about the purpose statement of this book. We see it pretty much right here in the first two verses. Revelation is a book that offers the clearest and sharpest vision of God's ultimate purpose for the whole world, for the whole creation, and of the way in which the powerful forces of evil who are at work now and at work back then 
will simply be put down. They will be overthrown. There is victory in Christ. There is victory in the Messiah. And that victory looks so radically different than what everyone expected that victory to look like. Now, we know in our own studies that the Messiah was expected to be a, an earthly military leader that would overthrow Rome. And that's just not what we got in the person of Jesus. We got a Messiah that wouldn't overthrow the earthly powers, but would undermine all the powers of evil in total. And in doing so, make us confident that we don't have to fear anything. John, as a good Jew and a new follower of Jesus, understood that this revelation he received was something so radically new that he had to tell everybody about it. And so that's why he writes to the seven churches in Asia. Let's continue looking at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So here John says, this is what the big story is about, and I need to tell you, dear churches in Asia, grace to you and peace. And then we see the first time this is written, and it will be repeated in just a few verses, from him who is and who was, and who is to come. Now, we say that. That's the Trishagion, right? We understand that God is, was, and will be. And John gives us that vision, that complete vision, where Christ connects from the beginning of time to the end of time and everything in between. And that idea will be repeated over and over again in Revelation. Now, the seven churches in Asia are the seven churches, if we look at verses 10 and 11, John hears a loud voice like a trumpet behind him, and it says to him in verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Theatria, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So the seven churches are literally seven churches, yes, but the seven churches are also representative of the capital C church. Remember, seven is a holy number. And whenever you see a number of any kind in Revelation, ask yourself, what might that number mean beyond just the literal description of the vision? So when John says the seven churches, yes, he actually means seven churches, physical churches, but John also means that seven is this holy number. To the seven churches, he's really writing to the church. Now, I want to help you all see the seven churches picture because, you know, seeing things graphically is helpful. So I'm going to put up a picture real quickly. Here are the seven churches of Asia. This is what John's talking about. You see the Mediterranean. This is the Eastern Mediterranean. Jerusalem, written nice and big over there. So Israel's on that Western coast on the east side of the Mediterranean. As you scoot up, you see Turkey, which we call Asia Minor or Galatia. And on the western side of Turkey, we see those seven churches. And as you can see out in the water, 
is the island of Patmos. So John is writing from Patmos, and he's writing to those seven churches that are all in Western Asia Minor, what is today Western Turkey. And a few of them, like Ephesus and Smyrna, are actually on the coast. All right, let me see if I can get this back up here. All right. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not entirely sure if I know how to work this stuff, um, but now I'm back. So those are the seven churches in Asia. John's literally writing this letter to all seven churches. And as I've noted, John had some connection to these churches. It's entirely possible John could have helped to plant these churches. John could also have helped to grow these churches, helped to sustain these churches. He could, in a sense, be their pastor. Not formally like we think of now, but effectively an elder or a pastor, and he's been removed from them. And so his love for them continues, and he writes to them with that hope of providing a word of love and courage as they face a growing threat from the Roman Empire to the Christian disciples around the world. All right, so that's the end of section two. We're going to flip into section three real quickly. Um, ah, Teresa asks a good question. How would the letters get to them into Turkey since he was a prisoner? So we are, <laughs> you know, the Roman Empire was a weird dichotomy. On the one hand, they were horrible and treated people inhumanely. And on the other hand, there was sort of this functional properness about them, and the male was actually one of those things that they valued. And so writing letters was actually something that was kind of dignified. And even a prisoner locked away should not be, should be given the dignity of being able to send and receive mail. I mean, there was a humaneness to their imprisonment. And so it's, it's almost certainly consistent with many other examples we have of the Roman Empire that John would have been able to write letters and receive letters. Paul, we know, when he was arrested, because Paul was a Roman citizen, Paul was effectively under house arrest. I mean, he wasn't even in a jail cell. He was more or less, you know, almost had like an ankle monitor in his house. He could receive people. He could write letters. Um, he could get gifts, all that sort of stuff. And so John's not quite in a situation that nice, but John would have certainly been able to write letters back and forth. Um, Tom asks, if John was on Patmos because the Romans did not like what he was doing, why would they allow his letter writing to churches? <sighs> Again, I think it's, it's really just a... It's a function of dignity. I think that the Roman Empire had many bad qualities and had many good qualities. Um, I mean, we know in Western history, there was a very regular appealing back to both Greek and Roman principles, whether that was government representation or ways of life or things like the male. You know, that was important. Communicating with people was seen as a way of maintaining civilization. And 
yes, I think in hindsight, um, the Romans probably shouldn't have let John write these letters, but they did. And then his ideas became a root of extreme courage and vision for what God wanted for the churches, and not just those churches in Asia, but for all churches. That's why Revelation was so critically important, is it gave those Christians a hopeful vision of what the world is and will be, not just what they see around them. So yeah, in hindsight, the Romans kind of messed up, didn't they? Okay, let's press on. We're going to get to sections three and four of today's study, and now we're going to really, really get into the actual meat of Revelation chapter one. So let's jump ahead to verse seven. This third section of today's lesson is Jesus is coming. Not too hard. Verse seven, let's read. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we see here a vision of Christ. Christ is coming, coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Right, remember? On the cross, nails, spear in the side, even those who pierced him will see him. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. Right, we already get in verse 8 a redundant message about who is, who was, who is, and who is to come. What is interesting about this is the idea that God and Christ existed at once. All right, so let me pause there. Jesus as the Messiah is a very different kind of Messiah than what a lot of people expected. What we see in our Gospels, if we take first Mark, then Luke and Matthew, and then John, if we take them in that order, which is how they were written, that's the actual chronological timeline, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, we see a development of Christology. And that is basically the thinking about Jesus. We see in Mark, Jesus as a teacher right? Jesus was the rabbi. He taught good stuff. But even in Mark, we don't see a leaning into Jesus's divinity with a lot of clarity or strength. Then we get to Matthew and Luke. And Matthew and Luke begin to straddle this idea of Jesus as just a person with Jesus as the son of God. Okay, that kind of makes sense. But what does that really mean? Is he still human? Is he still, is he divine? Is he kind of both? And so Matthew and Luke lean into the legal and parable teachings of Jesus. When we get to John, we start to see a very high Christology, what we call a high understanding of the Christ-ness in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, right? So yes, there is Jesus of Nazareth, the human person. Then there is Jesus, the Christ, who is the divine person. And we get a lot more Christness in Jesus in the Gospel of John, which is one of the reasons why Christians tend to like John. Or at least if I were to tell you, hey, go find one of your favorite verses to describe Jesus, I think you'd be hard-pressed to pull one of those verses out of Mark, Matthew, or Luke. You're almost certainly going to hit John. 
Because John is where we get the Christ of Jesus far more explicitly than in any of the other three Gospels. In a sense, what is happening here in Revelation is the Christness of Jesus is becoming stronger and clearer. Now, it will still be a few hundred years before we get clarity in a doctrinal way about Jesus being both fully human and fully divine, but they're working on it. And we see this vision in Revelation as being part of the work towards what will ultimately be an understanding of Jesus the Christ as being both fully human and fully divine. Is that all I want to say about that? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, a few notes about the setup of Revelation that we see here in these first few verses. So as I've said already a few times, I won't harp on it. This is a letter. And we see that very plainly at the very beginning. Dear friends, boom, here's the letter. This is also a prophecy, right? A letter, it's also a prophecy. And a prophetic word is one that is aware of the reality of the world right now and remembers and envisions and imagines and points to the eternal promise that we have received from God. I'll say that again. When someone is prophetic or when someone prophesies, they are not telling the future. They are not a fortune teller. Instead, what they're really doing is they're looking out at the world and they're seeing what is. And they're telling everybody, this is what is. And this is what God promises. And there's a gap between what is and what God promises. Sometimes there's a much bigger gap than other times. But effectively, what a prophet does is says, this gap should be closed. And the way we close that gap is by doing X, Y, and Z, or believing X, Y, and Z. And so when you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, every one of them is at a certain place in a certain time speaking to a certain group of people about what they're doing and what they should be doing. Get it? What they're doing and what they should be doing and closing the gap. If the gap doesn't close, bad stuff might happen, right? And this harkens back to the prophetic and apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament, like Daniel. Daniel knows there are prophets who spoke to the kingdoms before the exile. And what they said was, y'all are not doing the stuff that God wants you to do. God talked to us and all of these great people of the past, and y'all are not listening to what God said. You are doing wrong stuff. And that gap is growing. And you need to close the gap or else something bad might happen. And then when they get in the exile, they looked back at what the prophets told them and they said, oh, dang, you know, those prophets, they knew what they were talking about. Here's a danger. Often, Prophets are valued most when their prophetic words come true. I think there's a danger in valuing a good prophetic word only when it comes true. Because to be fair, we can all receive a good prophetic word that is good enough 
to make us change what we do. And when we change what we do, we're no longer doing the other thing that we were doing and we are slowly closing the gap and we may close the gap enough, not perfectly, it's only Christ that really closes that gap, but we can work toward closing that gap more and more and in doing so actually change what could happen that is negative, bad, painful, heartbreaking in the future. doesn't mean that we can remove the heartbreak and the pain, but it absolutely means that we can lessen it, that we can, through our own faithfulness, through our own efforts, help to bring about the kind of kingdom that God wishes on the earth, that kind of heaven kingdom now. Not something off in the future, not up in the clouds, not harps and fat babies with wings, but something right now. We can make this world right now better when we are willing to be courageous and close that gap. The other thing I want to say about these first few verses is that there's a word used in verse 2. And that word is often translated as testimony or witness. When John says he is witnessing something, and then he wants to testify to what he witnessed, the Greek word being used there is martyrian. Martyrian. And it's spelled M-A-R-T-Y-R-I-A-N. Did you get that? M-A-R-T-Y-R. What's that? Martyr. In a sense, what John does in Revelation is he began, begins a process of redefining what martyrdom actually is. Up to this point, a martyr is someone who bears witness to or testifies to a truth that may be hard to hear. But if you connect the dots, if someone living in the first or second century is testifying to or witnessing to the power and authority of God through Jesus Christ over and against the Roman Empire, then what happens to that martyr? That martyr's probably going to get executed. And in that execution, the witness and the testimony of that martyr is one that gains power through their death. And it transforms the idea of martyr from one who witnesses and testifies to one who is willing to die for it. And it's important to note that we get that word in the second verse of Revelation, which ultimately will influence Christians for hundreds of years. Lastly, what we see about the repetition of the, of the phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come, is a very clear point that Jesus has completed God's purpose. God created the world and has put things in motion and has sent prophets and scribes and poets and you name it, all these great holy people, to help move in his purposes. And yet, Jesus is the one who completes and fulfills God's purpose in total. And John makes that very clear. 
Now the rest of chapter one is relatively simple. We've got a few minutes, so let's jump in. Verse 12. This is the fourth, sorry, I should say, this is the fourth section of the study. We're shifting into the vision of Christ. So verse 12. Then I, John, turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. Okay, so we are barely halfway through the first chapter of Revelation, and we are already into, deep into, these incredible images. John's letter is going to be so full of uh, incredible, amazing, unbelievable images that it can begin to get confusing. It's too sensational. I invite you to hang in with some of these crazy visions, and we will try to unpack each of those visions as we go. I will be using art a lot more in Revelation than I did in Daniel because, gosh, it just helps to kind of see something about these words because then we can piece them apart. But starting here, we see what? Seven lampstands, right? Then we see in his right hand, seven stars. So lampstands, stars, both seven, seven is the holy number. And then in the middle, in verses 14 and 15, we get a recollection of the image of Christ that looks, that sounds very similar to, anybody? Daniel chapter 10. Remember that? As a reminder, Daniel chapter 10, verse 5 and 6 says this. So when I read this, look at Revelation 1, 14 through 15. Okay, look at chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, and I'm going to read you chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 of Daniel. I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Ephaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. Remember that? Back when we studied Daniel 10, I said it sounds a lot like the vision of Christ in Revelation, and here we get, immediately in chapter 1 of Revelation, a hearkening back to what all the good Jews would have known, and that is Daniel chapter 10. When John says, I saw Christ, and he looked like this, all those good Jews are going to immediately recall Daniel and say, John's vision must be true, because John is seeing a vision that is just like Daniel's, okay? Do not discount that in this moment, John is validating his vision explicitly. John is validating his vision by saying, y'all looks just like Daniel's vision, because Daniel at this point in time would have been held up as a fabulous, super important visionary and prophet. And for John to say, hey, I'm like him, 
right? I'm having the same kind of great vision like Daniel. People will say, hmm, okay, maybe we should take this very seriously because obviously something about this is very, very true. Now that clear picture of Jesus is meant, not meant to, that clear picture of Jesus could scare us. And fear is a perfectly appropriate response to what John is seeing. And John himself is afraid. And yet Jesus says in his very Jesus way, do not be afraid. Let's keep going with verse 17. When I, John, saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we'll stop there. Jesus says, I know this looks scary, but believe what I have said. I am the first and the last. I have defeated death itself. I hold the keys of death and of hell itself. And so you do not have to be afraid. And in this moment, Jesus gives the most important message of the entire book of Revelation, and perhaps the most important message of all, of the entire gospel. Jesus has defeated death. And Jesus has defeated death for us, not just for John, not just for the seven churches, not just for the Christians in the first century, but for you and for me. Jesus has defeated death itself. And now nothing, nothing that this world can throw at us can ever separate us from God. That's it. That is the big message of this entire book. And verse by verse, chapter by chapter, John's vision is going to unfold in an incredible way that points again and again and again to God's strength and authority. Because in the end, God wins. And because God wins, so do we. All right, my friends, it's 11.30. I appreciate getting this started. I am so excited about Revelation. I hope you are too. I hope you are not scared. I hope you will tell your friends to join us because this is gonna be a pretty incredible study. You and me together, we're gonna do it right. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Stay safe, stay faithful, stay strong, and I will see you back here next week. God bless you all. Bye.